Welcome to Indie Depth, the show where we go in-depth with independent filmmakers. I'm your host, Andrew Froning, and today I have here with me writer, director, actor, Brian McGinley. Welcome to hey. the show, Brian. <laughs> Good morning. How are you? Doing all right, man. As well as we can be during this pandemic. Yeah, same here. You know, it's really unfortunate times. Um, but, you know, fortunately we're doing okay here. I hope you're doing good on your end, too. Um, For the most part, yeah. It's a good time to be creative, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, a lot of time on our hands. And um, I know for me, I've actually have had more time during the pandemic than, um, uh, you know, I normally do. I'm a lot busier now, actually, So, yeah. which is positive, you know. So. Yeah, I feel the same. Like, work is, you know, there's a little more work. I'm working yeah. from home part of the time when I'm not at the office or going out in the field, um, working with only a few people. So kind of minimizes the risk, but <laughs> it's still out there and it's super stressful, you know? Yeah, it is. Uh, you got to be careful. And I think that's the one thing that we're always thinking about with social distancing, um, you know, even hygiene, uh, <laughs> sure. coming back, hand washing and things like that. So it's, you know, you got to be careful with what you're dealing with out there. So Sure. Now, um, as I understand it, for your latest script, you're taking us to a better time. Um, yes. <laughs> the 1930s, 40s era? era. Yeah, uh, 1947 to be exact. So it's, uh, you know, post-World War II. Um, but it is, uh, it's an interesting time. Obviously a time where I was not around. So <laughs> got to do a little research, sure. um, things like that. But it's... Uh, it's an exciting script. I actually wrote the story first, and now I'm actually, you know, transcribing or adapting it into the script. So it's going to be a web series, not a film. Oh, okay. Which is, uh, you know, kind of kind of different for me. I haven't really done much along, uh, you know, webisodes and things like that. I've basically dealt with film. I, th I think I did one sitcom that was about it. So that was kind of like a web series. But okay. we pulled on that kind of early so <laughs> yeah web series are fun especially when you get into the structure because yeah. if you're writing for the web it's all about being concise which personally i love yeah you, you know you've got maybe two locations maybe three uh, maybe one yeah. and you have to start it you have to make it exciting and then you have to end it and typically i've ended a lot on cliffhangers because I want people to come back next week and I want people to forget. <laughs> right, yeah. And you've done that really well with the connection. Oh, thank just, you. You're constantly just like, what's going to happen next? Yeah. What exactly is going on? What's going on behind the scenes of, of what the plot is? So, and, and that's the cool thing about it. You're still kind of guessing where everything's going. And that's what you need to keep the mystery going. So. It's, yeah, it's all about mystery. And uh, just personally for me, it's keeping the audience engaged in the story yeah. like i don't i don't give you absolutely everything from the jump i give you enough that you're like okay this is kind of familiar i can place this i get what's going on but then something might happen where it's it's a little different and you have to reevaluate so yeah i definitely trust my audience because I, I like to watch stuff like that that makes me think right so. yeah there's a lot of stuff out there like i think of david lynch when you talk about that because yeah. you're not ever sure what's going on you know, but you're always intrigued. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Good, 
good choice for uh, for an example there. I yeah. never know what the hell's going on. No, no. <laughs> I don't. Back. I don't know if he like clearly knows if you'd ask him for some of the films. No, he keeps it pretty abstract. I think it's just he just throws it out there. You know. Yeah. I love the <laughs> meme. Elaborate on that. No. <laughs> That's great. Um, so you're We're, talking about post World War II, 1947. We were not alive back then. Um, what do you look at for for research? Because um, for writing a period piece, you have to know about the period. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, there's a lot of things, a lot of basic things, you know, that you think about. Uh, things that we don't really take for granted, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, cell phones. Well, obviously, there's no cell phones, but what does the telephone look like back mm. then? I haven't really dealt with that, for example, but a, a good example is police radio okay so were police radios were they functional back then and they were because if you go into i think i did a little research and i think it was like in the 30s maybe late 30s or early 40s so if i have a police officer having to you know make a call over the radio i have to see is the radio existing because you don't know yeah. <laughs> you know you think about the radios they had then too just um your your standard radio a domestic radio in your home and stuff it's not the same thing as even they had in the 50s or the 60s so we're closer to the the 50s um being in the later half of the decade but you got to look at like what is actually existent for example um uh i have a scene with uh the california state police um and basically there was not a swat team at that time so you know you have you know i had a sniper um, for the situation, but you can't use the term SWAT team. There's no, mm -hmm. no special weapons and tactics going on there at that time. So right. stuff you got to think about to kind of fill in those holes that just might be, it, it, you know, it might be there if you if you just ignore things that you know you take for granted for this time. So sure, and society too, very different coming out of World War Two. There's a lot of optimism, but I'm sure there was also a lot of people who um, had been affected by the war, PTSD. They didn't know what that was back then. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, because when you're in the war back then, it's kind of like, well, now you're back in society. That's it. And you're a man. So you better go and just deal with society, integrate, and just go back to your job. You know, you're back at the plant now, or you're back, you know, at the factory, and people aren't thinking about you know being you know shell-shocked and post-traumatic stress and all that stuff so it is a different time and you think about the economy and all that um i don't really know the log logistics or the economical factor at the time but how many people were really doing good right after the war with financially you know there's a lot of money spent on that so um maybe that's why some of these criminals are doing the things they do you know, or maybe they're just born bad. I don't know. <laughs> mm, it's up to the psychologists of the time, and yeah. uh, well, and our um, our hindsight, right? <laughs> when right. you're looking at psychologists and all the studies they've done on John Dillinger and everything. Yeah. Um, so, what does your script deal with? Like, give us a quick pitch so we know what we're talking about. Um. So it starts with uh, Detective James Killian. Um. It's uh, you know it's pretty um i like to get into the stereotypes uh so it's kind of stereotypical at first of what a 1940s noir film is 
Um, but basically, he comes into his office. He needs to you know the sexy blonde that needs help from the detective. Uh, a lot of cliches like that. But what we have going on with her is she's trying to find someone, as usual. Someone's gone missing. And to basically uh, not give too much away, you know, um, he's suspected to be kidnapped. And in that case, there's usually almost always a ransom or something like that. So there's kind of, uh, you know, the mystery of James Killian going out, finding some clues. How does he find the clues? And then kind of delving deep into now, where do I find this guy? You know, and that's basically just a brief summary of what it means to... um, to start this mystery, you know, it's kind of like, uh, not to give too much away, but there's twists and the turns. And that's what I yeah. feel is you got to keep everyone on their toes all the time. And it's going to be a different medium doing it, um, like you said, with web series where it's just like, you know, five, it might be five minutes at a time. You're using one, one or two locations. So it'll be different for me, I think. Yeah, and I so. think you're set up perfectly because you have to work within those um, stereotypes or almost cliches even just to center the audience but once that's perfect because they think they know where they are and then you can start subverting those Mm -hmm. and you can get some some really cool things and you get somebody say okay there's a new spin on this this take that I love and you know what drew me to this I'm now going in a, a slightly different direction right so yeah and that's that's what makes it so powerful, you know, is to just you get in there like, you know, you talk about cliches of uh, what the story is, um, and especially with 1947. It's just there's a lot of, you know, stereotypical cliches like just the detective walking into the office. There's the sexy woman already waiting for, you know, waiting for him. You, you, you know, a lot of flirtatious stuff going on in the beginning. Um you know, connections and, and how is it going to go? And then, you know, then you start slowly bringing that stuff out that kind of, you know, is uh, a plot point, a plot twist that, you know, leaves people kind of thinking, well, what is going to happen next? Sure. So, Keep them guessing. That's, that's yeah. what mystery is all about. That is it. <laughs> Keeping the mystery alive. Um, now, research. Um, did you look to books, internet articles? Um, where did you, where did you go? And was there someplace that you didn't expect to go that you found? Um, I kept my research pretty basic with Google. Um, I uh, didn't really do an extensive amount, but enough that would keep me going for a while as I was pausing and figuring out, well, what type of car are they driving at this time? What's the typical car that um, not only is in 1947, but that a gangster would drive? You know, um, what type of guns were they using? Things like that. So, like, you know, Plymouth Deluxe might be something that a gangster would drive. Obviously, Tommy uh, submachine guns they'd be using, Thompsons. Um, different things like uh, like that. You know, like, what are the criminals using? What's a standard car, basic car, that this detective would use? Because he's not going to be driving, you know, a top-notch car. You know, he's not going to be using the most expensive car around. So it's basic stuff like that. What's a standard car? What's something that maybe was considered uh, more brand new in the early 40s that he'd still be driving in the 1947? You right. know? 
It's the details that count. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we've got Google at our fingertips, so if you have a question or you're thinking about something or if you've written a cell phone into 1947, time to, time to check the Google. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping people aren't doing that, but, you know, um, <laughs> you never know these days. Um, <laughs> maybe some people think, like, the, you know, the regular phone, the rotary phone is uh, 1947, but right. that's more... Nope. 80s, you know. <laughs> yep. Brian, we're talking about writing a story set in 1947. Very different time. Very different way of speaking from some of the movies and, and books I read. I mean, a lot of that is probably stylized. But what's your approach to writing dialogue from a different time? Um, dialogue for me was kind of easier. Um, I think a lot about the way my grandfather would speak. Um, I think about maybe like friends' grandparents and things like that that really stuck with me from childhood. And my grandfather was probably born in, uh, I want to say 1914. So, you know, he has, he had that style that just stuck with him, you know? And that's what I think about, um, while I was writing this, I thought a lot about my grandfather, you know, um, World War II era, uh, you know, coming back, um, you know, having my dad as a kid, you know, um, the way he would probably speak, the way, you know, um, they would do things. So I just thought about, like, a lot of, like, catchphrases and things like that. Um, so it wasn't really too hard. I kind of went with my gut. Um, I think the hardest part, really, about dialogue was I did just a little bit of Googling, um, actually YouTubing, I should say, for a Lithuanian accent. So Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So um, there is a part where we have Lithuanian drug dealers, <laughs> and it was uh, you know it was kind of interesting just listening to the accent really, and then figuring out how would they say English because you can't you can't say a sentence that I would typically say the same exact way when you're coming from a foreign country and we all know that so if you're gonna just write your dialogue just like any american person that's speaking you know it's, it's not gonna be realistic yeah i think there's you know just choppy ways of doing it you know you cut out maybe uh prepositions or things like that you know just different things that you would take out out of the language so okay. i wish i had script on me right now i give you an example of something but, <laughs> but no. yeah these are obviously people who you know they weren't born here they're they're maybe you know from world war ii a lot of people were displaced um right so we're talking about something fresh yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. i don't think prepositions was really the right word but there's different things that you take out uh of, of the language so um again i can't really think of a good example but you know, it's it's shorter, it's more staccato, I think, okay. the rhythm than the way we talk. So, like if I were to speak Spanish, I I wouldn't know what the hell I was doing, even though I took a couple of years of Spanish. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's funny. I can I can pretty much understand it if I listen to it, but then it's time to speak. I don't know. It's a difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing to to learn another language and uh, to be to be thrust into that atmosphere. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, neat. And um, I know when I read like Dashiell Hammett or um, some of those old 
film noir detective books or watch some movies there's always there's always some some uh, some witty dialogue yeah um, i think of raymond chandler a yeah. lot when i when i read i'm just like so i think that too kind of prepared me for a lot of this just reading you know like the big sleep or uh what's the other one goodbye my lovely mm-hmm. um, uh so that that really I, I mean really if you look at chandler's work and then look at uh, what I'm doing, it's probably going to be uh, a huge inspiration in the writing. So, good. <laughs> I look forward to it because the writing back then was was so good, and not just dialogue, but also the stories. You know, they were they were about human beings. They were very human stories. They were they were moral stories for the most part. I think because of they had some kind of code they had to follow. Yeah, I mean that's that that's part of it. I think the other thing too was just it was um, you know you're limited with film back then with special effects and all mm-hmm. those things where we just kind of litter the screen with everything blowing up or you know things that they couldn't do that easily back then. They had to blow up a real car, so you had to have a solid script. Whereas now, you know, sometimes the script is secondary or maybe in you know third place to everything else and we're kind of like well it was good movie visually but you know it just wasn't a good it wasn't good writing and that's what they had back then they had writing as the backbone so that's that's why there was a lot of creativity with the script too because it was like it better be written well otherwise people are going to be bored you know so i respect that and i think uh you know, some movies that we talked about earlier was, uh, you know, like Sunset Boulevard or uh, just seeing the adaption of, like, the picture of Dorian Gray, things mm-hmm. like that, where um, I think there's a belief that people had that maybe acting wasn't as good back then. But when you had these incredible scripts and you had really good directors, really good actors, I think that doesn't always ring true. Um, I think they've they've had some incredible work back then um i love movies from that era i mean billy wilder sunset boulevard um i recently watched um the apartment witness for the prosecution i watched um maybe a weekend or two ago so so good just just amazing his writing i think he was probably one of the best in hollywood at that time absolutely great storyteller and just human human stories i mean they had a little bit of I guess what was tending towards a blockbuster feel, mm. uh, especially with Witness for the Prosecution being a British courtroom drama. Um, but still, that's very different from what we have these days. And I, I like that you said a script is the backbone, because I've heard a script described as a blueprint, um, but then people, they don't build it to specification, so it doesn't quite fit. But I've heard it say that the script is the skeleton and everything else is the meat, the skin, the organs. So it's just without that skeleton, it falls apart. Got to have a I, good script. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that um, because you can have really great actors. And if you have a script that just delivers these lines that don't work, and I've seen it, um, I've even seen it with uh, recent independent stuff I've seen on Amazon Prime or something like that where it's just like, you know that these people are great actors, but the lines just aren't working or they're doing the best they can and they're like they're kind of nailing it but you can tell that the actual written dialogue is weak 
you know, and that's that's something that you really want to look for in the script. You want to make sure you eliminate all the weak dialogue before, um, well, before you start shooting. <laughs> Definitely. I remember when I was starting, um, I would take scripts that either friends had written or that I had written, and I'd pretty much go through everything, and I cut out anything that wasn't necessary, anything that I felt was repetitive, I'd combine things, I'd combine um, lines, and that's just starting out. I mean, now it's a bit more instinctual, like, I know I have to hit this here. But starting right. out, it was it's very much pared down to what's absolutely necessary. It's not about having someone have this verbose dialogue and speak for two minutes straight <laughs> that's that's almost the opposite of what you want you don't want to yeah. spoon feed you don't want to throw everything yeah on the plate. too much ambition you know <laughs> and that's what it is it's good it's good to have ambition but um craft is is all about doing it well yeah because you got to think about when you're writing when you're writing dialogue you got to think about instead of like i said too much exposition um you want to go and think about what they're really saying behind the words so they're kind of as human beings we're masking what we're saying you know um uh I, you know just trying to think of something offhand you know um maybe you want another piece of cake and you're not saying i want another piece of cake you're saying isn't that cake good you know? yeah it's all subtext one else to, to say well you want another piece so it's not saying exactly what the person is wanting and so you have the intentions in the actors really in their eyes or in their you know a different part of their face or body language and that's really what's supposed to be delivering so uh, I can't remember who it was I was just reading an article and they were saying about you know almost like you can write a whole movie without dialogue um, and that's that's what it is because a lot of the acting is the body language um, facial expressions you know, and then the dialogue's really more about what's not being said, I feel, you know? And that's something to kind of look for, because when I was writing, uh, I think my very first independent film, DC, um, it was just kind of, it was verbose. <laughs> and I realized when we started delivering these lines, um, even, even when I was delivering them as the writer, I was like, oh... You know, and again, acting in that role, I was like, that's a mouthful, <laughs> you know, and you got to learn to to get a rhythm and cut it down to make it concise. Right. You got to say more with less. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's all about just the learning process, I guess, because when we all do our first film, you know, we kind of uh, we think we know everything. We think it's going to be great script and great dialogue and all those different things. But then we learn, you know, it's a learning process. And I think it's the best film school you could actually get is doing your your own films, your first film. Because you could go to school uh, anywhere, like, from two to four years for this stuff. And you're not learning everything. You're, you're just not. Not until you're actually doing your own film that you're putting your own money uh, into or, you know, someone else's money that you're like, yeah, you start realizing what you need to do. <laughs> Everything from pre-production with the script throughout, you know, uh, filming and post-production, you realize what works, what doesn't work, and what you can 
hopefully do better next time. So, so Brian, you not only write and direct, but you also act. How yes. does being an actor inform your dialogue or being a writer inform you being an actor? Oh, that's a pretty good question. Um, basically, when I write a script, uh, I think of it kind of like the same way I see myself like in post-production. As an actor, I kind of, um, I just see myself in the third person. And again, like not in an egocentric way, but, you know, as someone who has the job to deliver uh, the lines, um, you know, appropriately with enough passion, enough reality in, in what I'm doing. So how does being an actor impact the writing and how does um, the writing impact being an actor? I mean, it's not really much different for me as for when I'm writing a character specifically for someone else. So there's not a whole lot difference in that, in terms of that. It's just that maybe when I get closer to shooting, I may change a line or two because I know I might say it differently. Whereas in my head, I might, you know, might have thought, well, this is going to work great. I'll be able to say it just fine. And then, you know, maybe we start shooting the scene and I might, I might scratch that line last minute because it might not flow naturally with everything. Um, but I think I'm more apt to actually do that with another actor because I may write the script specifically for this person. This person may not be playing the role because <laughs> you see, you know, I mean, people, you know, people have other uh, uh, films that they're working on, people drop out. So when you have someone else come in and as you're doing, um, you know, reading or even when you're, you're right, uh, you know, against shooting the scene, you're like, well, that's not going to flow naturally for their personality. So you may have to chop that out. But um, I guess just being the actor and uh, being the writer, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't change anything that much for me because I'm just, I write it just the same as I do for other characters, you know. It's, um, it's all about the creation of the characters in my head and then just saying what needs to be said and if things need to be ironed out last minute that's when i do it so well does being an actor and knowing that process of of how you have to deliver these lines does that help you become a better writer absolutely yeah um because we're talking about you know making things more concise and i think i do that because i think really about how i'm going to deliver the line um again going back to my film deceit uh, there's a lot of stuff that was verbose in it, and it's just like, oh, I learned my lesson big time that I can't, you know, <laughs> put out this huge long paragraph and then expect it to flow and be interesting because you start looking at people don't talk certain ways, you know, they don't always use correct grammar. Hmm. Um, so that's a big thing when you're writing dialogue that I, you know, I really like to talk about when I, you know, talk with other writers or other uh, screenwriters, um, whether you're writing a story or a film, the dialogue has to be realistic. Um, and it has to be realistic to a point where you're still telling the story through film or through, you know, prose. And the thing is, you got to take out some of the reality, though, too. If you think about how people really talk, you'll get ums and ahs and all this stuff and you know you 
you really might want to use like one um, <laughs> you know, if you really right. think how someone's talking. I, I, I literally sat next to, you know, a friend of mine as he was texting someone and he was doing a voice text. And he was laughing about how many ums were in his voice text. <laughs> you're not going to do that in your dialogue, especially if you're writing, you know, a story. It's, 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 that's maybe a little too realistic. <laughs> and sometimes things that are too realistic are boring, too. But you don't want to make things, um, you, you know, you don't want to make things just very bland. And, uh, again, it comes back to, like, using precise grammar. No one talks like that. Right. Right. <laughs> no. So you want to bring realism to it, but you want to dramatize that realism. Absolutely. Because what we're looking at is, you know, people, a lot of people like reality TV. I specifically don't. <laughs> so a lot of that stuff is boring to me because even though it's still set up, it's not reality TV, I don't care about what they're really doing. I want things to be a little bit more... Um, the reality suspended, you know. I want I want to suspend reality somewhat, you know. I did thinking about it uh, years ago. I did like a redneck sitcom, you know. And what I did was I wasn't blacking out everyone's teeth. I wasn't doing all. I kind of did what I call, you know, Hollywoodizing them. You know, I was making them. I was suspending some reality, but at the same time making things realistic. So there's that blend of that where you got to make things. Uh, it's a movie, you know. Um, you don't want people to sit there and say, you know, oh well, you know, I, I believe Superman with the X-ray vision and the flying and all that, but then, well, that's not realistic. What he just did, well, he's Superman, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, he, he has X-ray vision. He can run through walls or whatever. So. I mean, people have to remember that it's it's still a movie, and when you put too much uh, of the mundane reality, I should say, you know, then that can get boring. Unless well, you really like reality TV, I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, well put. I mean, I'm not a fan of reality so much. Reality TV so much either. Like every now and then, if something's on, they'll they'll become a guilty pleasure or something for like a little while. But I'm I'm not gonna watch it every day. It's it's one of those things where. The way they structure it, and you know, coming from a production background, I know it's fake. I know so much of that is is yeah. built in the edit, um, but it's really the the human stuff that draws me in. Um, yeah. The human drama. These people are fighting with these people because she stole her toothbrush, and you know they're living in the same room. Yeah, yeah it's it's just that little stuff that you know just kind of draws you in. Um, it's it's funny and i think too like you said from a production background we all know it's it's fake like i think it was the hills or one of those shows where one of the roads didn't even exist and you know there's so much stuff that's <laughs> but think about it that they probably if you even look at their reality and our reality again they're probably not adhering to what i'm saying when um you know when when naturally there's just stuff that we do that we don't want to see I'm sure the editors are obviously editing that out too. You know, right. we know they are. <laughs> you know, right. so there's there's so much of reality that I feel as a viewer we just don't want to see, and so you're not going to write that. You're not going to write um, all the ums that someone's saying. You know, or just basic stuff. You don't need to see every single thing someone's doing. You know, you're not going to film someone getting up, brushing their hair, brushing their teeth, doing this, doing that. You know, you might have 
cut shots of something if you feel like something's important. Maybe they're hungover and you might want to get shots of that for that reason because you want to show that they're a mess and they're stumbling and maybe they fall. But normally you don't want to see a lot of the mundane things. So there's always this suspension of, you know, reality that happens. For me it comes down to when making those decisions, does this add to the story? Yes. Right. Right. It does brushing your teeth add to the story? Right. If it doesn't, I think we can assume your character has good hygiene. <laughs> you know, if his teeth aren't, you know, falling out, I think we can take that for granted. I think we can take it for granted that a lot of TV and film characters eat and go to the bathroom, even though we never see it happen. Well, unless you're John Travolta. Then, then, then we got to see it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but that was important that he went to the bathroom because something happened there, you know? Right. It's, if you ever see somebody go to the bathroom, there's probably something important about to happen. And that's pretty true because you think Jurassic Park, you think yep, Game um, of Thrones. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly. It's everywhere. It's like rampant. So it's just kind of like <laughs> that's that's the scene where something pretty bad. You're probably not going to make it out alive, you know? All right. Drive. Probably. Yeah, something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the the converse to that. Um, being a writer, knowing the story, um, even if you haven't written it, um, knowing story structure and knowing the purpose of a scene, how does that help you as an actor? Um, well, it gives you your motivation. Um, you got to know what you're after. You don't know what you're after. You're kind of fumbling through your lines, I feel. you know, Or even if you're doing a great delivery, something just isn't right. So you really got to know what the character's after. That's the huge thing. So what's your big motivation? What do they want? And I know it's cliche to always be like, well, what's my motivation here? But that's the big thing. And I've seen it in my acting. Um, I've seen it with uh, a script a long time ago. I, I, you know, there's this simple line. I was able to deliver all the hard lines. And there's a simple line where, you know, I was just asking about this other character. And because I didn't know the motivation, there was no reality in what I was saying. Okay. Once I thought about, do I like this person? What's my connection to them? What's my history to them? And I know it's a lot to think about when you're just delivering a line or two, but that that, that makes a difference because you know your motivation is like, maybe I don't want this person to be here. So when you say their name, you're not saying it in a happy way. There's no smile on your face. So like, oh, is it this person? And, you know, and that's kind of, that's, that's kind of you know the, the meat and potatoes behind everything you say. You know if you um, if you think about Meisner and what and I, I come from his philosophy of thought, um, it, it's just like the words are kind of like the boat on the river, and the river is the emotion. Hmm. The emotion really comes from you know doing your homework of how do I feel about this character? How do I feel about this situation? You know, if you get a gift, how do you feel about it? You know, you know, if you're getting it from the love of your life, you might be excited. If you're, <laughs> if you're getting it from a mobster, you might not be too happy about the gift. You don't know if that gift is getting shot in the back of the head. So right. <laughs> you're going to have two different emotions. You're going to have excitement or you're going to be sweating bullets. <laughs> and you got to be able to deliver that um, on the screen. So do you so, feel you have maybe a better... Um maybe not immediate, but a, a better um, grip on the subtext 
Yes. If, say if you're reading a script you haven't written before, just from that writer's background. Yeah, I mean, definitely, because it's your story. You know the history, um, uh, or whatever you know the made-up history is of, of those characters. And when you're reading someone else's, I mean, it is more exciting because you have to delve into the mystery of what they're really getting at as a writer, uh, as a screenwriter, or, you know, uh, an author, a uh, playwright, I should say. So when you're studying for a play or you're studying your lines uh, for a movie, it's it, it, you don't always know everything. So you may misinterpret things. So when you go back, you may think you have this line uh, correct and you have it down, you did all this preparation. And maybe that, that the character isn't angry, you know? Maybe they were remor remorseful. And <laughs> that's going to change everything, and the director's going to let you know. Because the director should know the script in and out. Um, they should know the story, even if they didn't write it, and you're, you know, doing whatever it is, Shakespeare to, you know, uh, Streetcar Named Desire, um, <laughs> all that stuff, you know? Whatever you're doing, it's just... You know the director is going to know everything in and out, and they're going to let you know. And it's it, it kind of it's kind of interesting because I did a film a long time ago called If I Sang at a Tomb, and even though I was the writer on that, I had someone else direct it, and they would interpret the script differently, and they would say how I'm going to go in and deliver those lines so they might have had a different concept of what my character's getting at than even me as a writer and <laughs> and that's the beauty of of doing a film is everyone has a different concept of it and the director is right so as an actor you have to put your trust in the director and listen to what they're saying and i did a lot of that you know changing things around to to really make it you know make it fit good so, deal yeah <laughs> Well, Brian, this has been enlightening. Thank you so much for going indie depth with us. Thank where, you, Andrew. Where can we see your previous work? I do have some stuff on YouTube. I'll be uh, putting a few um, older works back up. Um, but I do have um, my film to see is an extra. Since it's a short, it's an extra on the film I Heart You, um, which uh, stars Rain Brown and Billy Garbarina. So if you pick up that copy of uh, that DVD, you'll actually see it um, on the extras. So Ooh, awesome. Do that. Um, and a couple of the other ones, I'll have some links up. Um, I have Deceit on the internet as well. Uh, there's one I did, I directed, called The Elephant. It was written by Laura Beck. Um, that is up there. Um, if I sang at a tune, I should have a link for that too. Um, so some of that stuff can be uh, viewed on my YouTube channel, and I'll get you the links to those. Perfect, and they will be in the description. Don't forget to subscribe right here, like the video, support us, help us out. I'm Andrew Froning. Thank you so much for going indie depth.